Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost. It's Thursday, November 15th, and here's what's on the docket this week. The biggest biotech IPO ever is on the horizon now that Moderna Therapeutics is finally going public. We'll talk about what this move says about the state of the public market and what to look for when Moderna takes the plunge. The makers of blockbuster drugs for autoimmune diseases have been raising their prices in lockstep and engaging in some remarkable tactics to keep things that way. STAT's national technology correspondent, Casey Ross, joins us to talk about the harm that all of this is causing patients. Next up, Tony Coles, the drug industry veteran who's now CEO of the biotech company Humanity Therapeutics, joins us for a wide-ranging conversation. We'll talk to Tony about his career, his new interest in politics, and his work developing drugs for neurodegenerative diseases. And finally, we're going to bring back Tony Coles for a special lightning round. We're going to pepper Tony with rapid-fire questions in which he must pick one of two options and then ask him to defend his opinion. You may even learn the shocking truth about Tony's favorite hot dog condiment. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the Read Out Loud? You can get more exclusive coverage from Adam, Rebecca, Damien, and others at Stat with a Stat Plus subscription. Stat Plus delivers daily, market-moving coverage of biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. By subscribing today, you'll get access to exclusive stories from our award-winning team every day. And as a special thanks to you, our podcast listener, subscribe to Stat Plus now and enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. We hope you enjoy Stat Plus, and thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener. Biotech is about to find out just how long its boom can last. Well, Moderna Therapeutics is a very large private biotech company, has just filed an S1 uh, to potentially raise about $500 million in an initial public offering. Now, this could- Moderna Therapeutics, the poster child for biotech's unicorn era, is finally planning to go public after years of secrecy and speculation. So, Damien, I feel like you're Stats resident unicorn wrangler. So tell us why this is all important. So Moderna commands a private valuation of more than $7 billion, and it's trying to raise $500 million at a public valuation that people expect to be around $10 billion. I know that's a lot of dollar figures, but the important read-through is that it would make for the largest IPO in the entire history of the biotech industry. And keep in mind, too, this is all happening at a really interesting time for biotech. 2018 has seen a near record number of IPOs. But at the same time, investors' sentiment has turned sharply negative over the past month or so, and it's getting harder and harder for companies to go public. So, Damien, why would Moderna choose to do this now? That's a great question, and it's certainly not because they need the money. On the way to building that $7 billion valuation, Moderna amassed more than $1 billion worth of cash, which, at their burn rate, is enough to keep them in business for at least a couple years without an IPO. The thing is, as you mentioned about investor sentiment, there's no way to be sure that such a large IPO will even be feasible two years from now. So I think it's entirely possible that Moderna and its investors are kind of hoping to force this thing through before the market gets worse. And that's where this becomes a story that goes way beyond Moderna. Um, We're recording this on Thursday morning, and we just learned that a widely anticipated IPO from a biotech company called Centrexion is getting postponed. 
Now, if you look at all of 2018's biotech IPOs, the median performance is down about 7%. So the big question here is, can a unicorn like Moderna really go public in this market? Well, Moderna is certainly going to try. The company hired 11 banks to help it go public. That number is about double what you normally see in an IPO filing. And you can bet they're all working the phones to try to get this thing off the ground. So at the risk of getting a little too hyperbolic, it does kind of feel like the fate of biotech, or at least the near-term fate of biotech, hangs in the balance with this giant IPO. If Moderna succeeds, it's a sign that the sector can still convince investors to part with lots of money and to get behind the idea that fairly early-stage science is worth billions of dollars in valuation. But if it fails, I think it could drive biotech even further into the red. And the worst case scenario, it could force the IPO window shut or at least near shut for years to come. What do gas stations and drug makers have in common? That is a good question, Adam. So you ever notice how gas stations across the street from one another so often seem to bump up their prices in lockstep? It turns out the makers of blockbuster drugs do that, too. So in this segment, we're going to talk about a new stat investigation into how that's played out with two of the world's best-selling biologic drugs for autoimmune diseases. One of the drugs is Humira. It's a drug for arthritis and related conditions made by AbbVie. And the other drug is Embril, Amgen's drug to treat similar patients. So for the past few years, the companies have repeatedly hiked the prices of those drugs by the same amount at the same time. And both companies have also taken pretty remarkable steps to make sure that no new competitor enters the market at a lower price. The result of all of these uncontested price hikes? Serious health consequences for the patients who depend on these drugs. And joining us today to talk about all this is Casey Ross, Stats National Technology Correspondent. Casey analyzed pricing data and interviewed impacted patients to report out this incredibly important story, which you can read by subscribing to Stat Plus. Casey, welcome to the podcast. Uh, it's my pleasure. So, Casey, you interviewed a patient named Anna Lagasse, who was diagnosed with systemic arthritis as a child and is now 35 years old and living in Boston. Can you tell us about Anna's experiences with these two drugs that you analyzed, Embril and Humira? Yeah, Anna has experienced this disease for most of her life, and throughout it, she's tried to get access to these expensive biologic drugs to control her illness and its symptoms, but as she's been going through it, the prices have been skyrocketing, which has made it much more difficult for her to get access at various points to both of these medications. And at some point uh, when she wanted to try something else because of insurance policies, she was made to try Humira and Embril at a point when they weren't going to work for her uh, any longer. And so price increases in the insurance policies combined to really uh, undermine the treatment of her disease and caused a lot of excess costs, such as surgeries that she had to get, uh, six different hip surgeries, Uh, three knee surgeries and a wrist surgery, all adding up to way more than the cost of these drugs had she gotten them in a timely manner. And Casey, I want to underscore one of the big takeaways I think you highlighted from Anna's story. So you're telling us that that these drugs actually made her condition worse, not better? Yeah, when you step back and look at her story, one of the things you realize is that she's been able to overcome her symptoms, not because of the drugs, but in spite of them. It's only after she fights through all of the insurance morass and the price increases that have prevented her from getting access to these drugs when she needed them that she's finally able 
to get better uh, and improve. And so it shows you that these two drugs, which are meant to help people, in her case, hurt her. So I wanted to talk about what you described as the extraordinary tactics that Amgen and AbbVie have engaged in to try to maintain the status quo as it is. One of those tactics is entering into legal settlements to delay the introduction into the U.S. market of biosimilars, which are essentially generic versions of biologic drugs. And a lot of what you documented here, I'm obviously not a lawyer, it sounds like anti-competitive conduct that would normally trigger like an antitrust action. Is the government looking into this? So a couple of members of Congress earlier this year on the Senate Judiciary Committee, Chuck Grassley who's its chairman, and Amy Klobuchar, a Democrat from Minnesota, both asked the FTC to review the legal settlements that have extended the exclusivity of Humira in the United States, and by extension, Embril as well in the United States. And the FTC has not said one way or the other uh, that it's investigating this or not. Uh, FTC has a policy of neither confirming uh, nor denying in these instances, but it certainly captured the attention of members of Congress who are pursuing this and are, are quite concerned about the impact on patients. So the story makes Amgen and AbbVie look pretty bad, Casey. What do these companies say in their defense? Well, the companies make several points, some of which we've heard before, and some are specific to this circumstance. High prices are the cost of innovation, that these price increases are necessary to cover the costs of biomedical innovation uh, in these disease areas. Another thing that they say is that their patents are defensible, that even though some of them were plainly made to in- to extend the exclusivity they say that that exclusivity is deserved because they were able to get patents that reflect innovation on these drugs, which should extend their exclusivity under the law. So they defend that. Another thing that Amgen says is its prices are really driven by the need to stay competitive with their rivals on the size of the discounts that they pay to insurers. These are discounts, of course, that are hidden from the public. We don't see them. They say they're competing on those, but those discounts don't necessarily make it all the way to the patient. So we've heard for years about this coming wave of biosimilars onto the U.S. market that's going to Uh, make these kinds of treatments cheaper for patients to actually access. What is it going to take for that to happen in a way that can bring relief to patients who've been in Anna's situation, who've been harmed by the practices you documented? When I talk to doctors and regulators and economists on that point, they say it's going to take regulatory or legal changes in our system that's going to allow for greater competition and greater ease of competition to address some of the tactics that are being employed to thwart it right now by uh, drug makers. That's a really tough balancing act. And it's not one that I don't think Congress and the president have demonstrated an ability so far to get right or to compromise on. So I think we're just going to have to stay tuned and watch that. Casey, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Thanks a lot. We have a special guest on this week's podcast. Tony Coles, CEO of Humanity Therapeutics, has stopped by the Boston studio for a chat. So Tony has degrees from Johns Hopkins, Harvard, and Duke. He's a cardiologist by training, and he practiced medicine at Mass General Hospital. He's also a big pharma veteran, having spent some time in executive positions at Merck and Bristol-Myers Squibb. Tony is probably best known for his work in the biotech world. He led NPS Pharmaceuticals for a time. And then in early 2008... Tony was named CEO of Onyx Pharmaceuticals. 
It's in this role that Tony really left his mark. He took over as CEO of the cancer drug maker when it was on some shaky ground of investors and its partner as well, the German pharma giant Bayer. But then Coles did something risky. He spent $800 million of Onyx's cash to buy a small, privately held company that was developing a multiple myeloma drug. I remember writing about this at the time. Investors had some doubts about Tony's decision. But Onyx shepherded that multiple myeloma drug through pivotal clinical trials. Importantly, that drug helped multiple myeloma patients, a fact that Tony is probably most proud of. And then soon after that, Onyx secured FDA approval. And then in 2013, Amgen came around with a $10 billion acquisition offer for Onyx. And here's how I summed up that deal in the digital pages of thestreet.com, where I worked at the time. I said, every biotech CEO wants to say that they bought an asset for X and sold it for 10X. Yet few top executives managed to create value on this mammoth scale. Onyx Pharmaceutical CEO Tony Coles just did it. And with that long introduction, Tony, welcome to the show. Well, thanks, Rebecca. So after Onyx, I'm sure you had your pick of jobs or you could have just retired. Instead, you decided to become CEO of Humanity, a biotech startup. Why? This one's pretty easy. I got a phone call from Susan Lindquist, uh, whom I had known uh, in a previous board role. And uh, Susan called shortly after we sold Onyx and asked if I'd help her raise money for a new idea she had to start a new company. Because I loved Sue and respected her, I, uh, of course, I told her I'd help her. But then she, in the same breath, said, well, would you run it? And that put me in the quandary. So why a quandary? Well, it put me in a quandary because I really wasn't ready to go back to work yet. I thought long and hard and asked her to send me the science papers. And as I started studying this fantastic technology Sue had developed in her lab at the Whitehead, realized that we might actually be able to crack the code on some of the most important and vexing diseases, uh, neurodegenerative diseases. So I was compelled to say yes to come to Humanity and run it. So Humanity is an early-stage biotech. You recently announced the company's first clinical candidate to enter into preclinical testing, uh, with human studies hopefully to begin late next year. You're targeting Parkinson's disease with the drug. Tell us about the science behind this drug and, and how it's a new approach to treating Parkinson's. In essence, uh, we use live cell models to try to understand the biology, the basic biology of these diseases, for which we don't have a good understanding or explanation. And the brilliance of the models is they actually tell us what's happening inside the cells. So we can screen the models with compounds and ask the cells to tell us what's wrong. And if we can repair the growth of these cells after they've been poisoned, in a sense, then we learn a lot about Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and ALS, and we have learned a lot. So Tony, just tell us a little bit about the lead compound that the company is pursuing. We did recently announce that we were moving the first compound, the first medicine, into preclinical studies with the expectation that we'll have first-in-man trials by the end of next year. This is for Parkinson's and Parkinson's-related disorders, and this has come from our labs, and it actually points us in the, in the direction of a brand-new mechanism of action for these Parkinson's-related disorders, something that we had never put together before, but we think uh, by inhibiting this particular enzyme that we can actually cause the cells to function more normally. And that would be dramatic because that could potentially stop the progression of the disease. 
So neuroscience is kind of an interesting space right now in that there's a lot of research and money being poured into the field, but there's also a lot of frustration and skepticism that a lot of current approaches are not working. And Alzheimer's obviously a prime example here. And at the same time, we're seeing big pharma exit the space by and large. What do you think about the state of neuroscience right now? Do you think kind of the old way of thinking about neurodegenerative disease needs to be thrown out? Well, I'm, I'm not sure that we need to throw it out because we, we've learned a lot about these diseases, but we haven't learned enough in order f- to, to train what we're really good at, which is identifying new therapies to treat these diseases. And a lot of that has to do with really understanding the basic biology of, of these, these horrible diseases. What we're really trying to ask ourselves is what happens inside the cell and in the tissue that causes patients to have these horrible symptoms that are debilitating for which there is no known cure. And the best solutions, we think, are going to come from answering the question of how do we repair the cells that are damaged as a result of this disease process. Let's switch gears and talk about drug pricing. Tony, you've been the CEO of a biotech that sold cancer drugs. You also sit on the board of McKesson, one of the world's largest distributors of pharmaceuticals. Now, with the midterms over and the House under control of Democrats, there appears to be a chance of bipartisanship over drug pricing legislation, or at least politicians on both sides of the aisle are paying lip service to that idea. So let me ask you, is there a situation where drug pricing legislation may actually be good for biotech companies? So I'm, I'm sure, Rebecca, that there are lots of potential solutions. I, I always like to think of this not as a pharmaceutical industry problem, but as a societal problem. We've got important diseases that need treatments and patients who actually need access to these cures. And, and I think it's our responsibility as an industry to think about how we price these agents responsibly and how we, at the same time, deliver them to people who need them the most, even if they can afford them the least. So that's a philosophy or that's a principle that, uh, that I think we should follow. But equally, society has a responsibility for ensuring that we're feeding the engine of innovation and discovery. And it's this healthy tension between where we price these agents and how we fund tomorrow's cures that will, that will find the heart of this argument and this debate in the months and the years ahead. There are no easy solutions. We believe that in this country, everyone deserves the, the access to the best health care and the access to health. So this is going to be a conversation we're going to have for a long time, and we ought to get to it because we can't bury our heads in the sand. Are there any ideas that you've heard percolating You know, when it comes to these kind of issues that you endorse or that you think would work? A few things. We should agree that innovative therapies should command an appropriate price, and we can define what appropriate is. Some countries choose to define that quantitatively, but we can have that debate and we should, we should uh, discuss it. We should also discuss the, the notion that if it's a copy or a me too, maybe it doesn't quite deserve the premium price of an innovative therapy. And certainly as a product approaches its patent expiry and, and reaches patent expiry, those should probably be the most readily available and cheapest products. Something within that framework is where I think we can begin the conversation. So 
Tony, sticking with politics a little bit here, a year ago, New York Times wrote a story about a group of influential African-American business executives and associates who were kind of banding together to raise money and kind of formally organize around political and social issues. You and your wife were were founding members of this group, um, which has now grown into a political action committee. Were you active in the midterm elections? And kind of where does the group go from here? Well, we we were quite active. We've called it the Black Economic Alliance because it's it's probably one of the first times that a group of black executives and business leaders have come together to really leverage the power of the collective, pool our resources together, aim at a very simple target, in this case, economic progress and economic opportunity for black Americans, and then really work within the political infrastructure to affect change. This was our first political cycle, and so it was really, really fascinating and, and exciting to watch the whole thing unfold. Midterm elections were recently held. We've watched what I think arguably, I think the night of the midterm, people thought was a blue splash, and very slowly, it's built to a blue wave. And that's an interesting opportunity for us to refresh the conversation on how we provide access to the American dream for all Americans. And that's not a conversation we're having a lot of today, but that's why we formed the group. Can you give us an example of where some money has been directed recently? Sure. We invested in races at the gubernatorial level, so in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Maryland, Georgia, Florida were some of the key governor's races we invested in. We also invested in races at the House level and at the Senate level uh, as well and followed them very carefully. We were very interested in driving voter participation in the races at the state level and at the district level that we invested in because we think every American should participate and midterms are really tough for people. They're busy, they've got childcare, they're working, but we wanted to help people understand that this was a really important election, particularly in terms of creating an opportunity and a place for advancement for all Americans. Tony, thanks so much for joining us. But of course, you have agreed to stick around to participate in a very special lightning round. So don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Okay, so now it's time for our lightning round. We're going to shake things up this week with a different format. Tony Coles is again going to join us. So here's how that's going to work. We will ask Tony a question in which he must pick between two binary options. There will be no hedging or dodging the question. He'll have to pick one. And we'll let him explain his reasoning. So Tony, you ready to get started? Let's give it a shot. Okay, first question. Tony, you've worked on both coasts. Which is the better place to do biotech? Boston or the Bay Area? New York. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of a dodge, Tony. Come on now. We told you you can't dodge. Boston or the Bay Area? Give us an answer. I'm going to say Boston because the talent pool is uh, so rich. Uh, it's so vibrant. There's so much happening. And at the moment, uh, and this will change, but the balance of, uh, of influences is in Boston. All right, Tony, this is the deepest question you're going to get in this segment, okay? Now, I've read that hot dogs are one of your favorite foods. So this is a two-part question, Tony. One, is hot dog a sandwich? Yes or no? And two, ketchup or mustard? Hot dog is definitely not a sandwich. A sandwich is always on flat bread, and it's always ketchup. 
Always. Even if you can't get mustard, it's always ketchup. ketchup. Yeah. I'm shocked. I th- no one over six years old puts ketchup on a hot dog. Really, Tony? It's what makes them so good now. <laughs> wow. This is news. We are making news in this podcast. But see, the mustard has to be the right mustard. And if you don't have the right mustard, it's not going to be a great hot dog. French's yellow mustard is not going to cut it on a really great hot dog. All right, back to biotech. So, Tony, as you probably know, Moderna Therapeutics filed for its IPO this week, and it could get valued at upwards of $10 billion if and when it goes public. And so I ask you, Moderna, is it the real deal or is it overhyped? I think it's the real deal. I think it's insight into a fascinating technology that we are learning more about every day. And as we transition from our best understanding about the genome to the proteome, really bridging the the understanding between those two is going to be very important. So I think Moderna has a lot to, to teach us, and it certainly has a lot to teach us about how tolerant the IPO market might be for a really good idea. So back to the really important topics, Tony. You haven't posted anything on Twitter for about a year. So we have to ask, do you have a secret burner Twitter account like Kevin Durant? Yes or no? I actually do. (laughs) We are making so much news on this podcast. (laughs) Tony, want to give us that? burner account handle? I'm not sure I can say, actually, <laughs> no, on air. It's, it's Dixie Chick 66. So. <laughs> All right. And here, last question, and we'll get back to a serious topic. So the next big trial readout in Alzheimer's disease is a pair of phase three trials on a Biogen drug called aducanumab. Uh, so we'll ask you, Tony, is Biogen's drug going to work? Yes or no? I think it's going to work. I think by moving earlier in the course of the disease, which was really the great insight for what phase 1B trial uh, that reported out a few years ago, I think that suggests that we're at least answering one part of the question, which is that if we treat patients earlier in the disease, can we make a difference? And so far, the data has suggested yes. The better question is, will this be enough? And there, I think aducanumab will not be enough. I think this disease is so complex that we'll need things to complement it, maybe even a cocktail of therapies, depending upon the stage of the disease, the genetic markers for the disease. The story's not fully written, but I'm rooting for our buddies at Biogen. Great. Tony, thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. But before we go, a programming note. The Read Out Loud will be on vacation for the Thanksgiving holiday, so you won't hear from us next week, but we'll be back as usual on Thursday, November 29th. A big thank you to Hyacinth Embanado, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you think about this week's episode, where you're listening from, ask us questions, or just rant about how horribly wrong we are. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And we really do appreciate the feedback. So thank you. See you in two weeks.